church health. And what it is that makes the church healthy and thriving and strong. I think a lot about what it is that makes the church a truly effective church for the glory of Christ. I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to be a church that causes ripple effects into eternity. And what that means consequently is that I also think about the kinds of things that on the surface seem to be healthy, but maybe not necessarily is the case. Things that seem healthy on the surface, but may not actually be true signs of authentic church health, which raises the question, doesn't it? How do you know? How can you tell the difference between something that seems to be healthy on the surface and something something that might not actually be healthy beneath the surface? Phrase the question this way. What's the difference between a busy and exciting church on the one hand and a truly healthy church on the other. Now, don't misunderstand what I mean by that. I'm not, I'm not saying that a, a, a truly healthy church is never boring. It's always busy and bustling with activity. I'm just saying that busy and healthy are not always exactly always the same thing. Because consider, consider the kinds of things that we just automatically assume means a healthy church but may not actually be the case. For instance, a full parking lot. That's a good sign, isn't it? Or energy, excitement, and feelings of momentum. What's wrong with that? Or a big church with lots of money. That'd be great. Or vibrant programs and stuff for my kids. Who doesn't want that? Or community, a church that has community involvement, a dynamic speaker who inspires people, or a church who supports lots of missionaries, or get this, a friendly community that makes you feel welcome. Like I said, good things, all good things. And if you're a healthy church, you'll probably have all of those kinds of things. I'm just saying that big programs, tons of money, community involvement, and being friendly do not necessarily mean that a church is a healthy church. I mean, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe you're thinking, okay, wise guy. If those things don't necessarily reveal a truly healthy church, if those aren't necessarily the guaranteed signs that a church is healthy, well, then what are the signs of a truly truly healthy church? How do we know when a church is truly healthy? Or at least, how can we tell when a church is on its way to becoming healthy? And that's an excellent question, and I have three answers for you. Here are the guaranteed signs that you can tell that a church is healthy, or at least on its way to becoming healthy. Number one, a commitment to proclaim God's word both up front and in every ministry. Number two, qualified elders who shepherd the flock and equip the saints. And number three, when every member in the church cares for one another's spiritual growth as their top priority. That's how you can tell. That when you, when you boil it all down and you strip away the American 
sort of things that we just assume makes a church, when you strip a church down to its bare studs and beams and foundation, what you're left with to make a healthy church is a commitment to proclaim God's word, qualified elders who shepherd the flock, and, and when every member in the church cares for one another's spiritual growth as their top priority. That is a good church. That is a healthy church that changes the world. And you see, it's that third item on the list that we've got to have a conversation about this morning. Because that third item on the list, caring for one another's spiritual growth as our top priority, that's a really, really big deal in the Bible. And at Christ Community, we have a name for that kind of spiritual care. We have a name for those kinds of relationships, at least we do this morning. And the name for those kinds of relationships that should fill a local church is what we're going to call here redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. Now, what that means, how to do it, and what that actually looks like, we're going to get to that. But you understand, the reason why we're talking about this this morning is because we're taking three weeks this fall. This is the third and final week where we are reviewing our mission, vision, and purpose as a church. We have a new mission statement. We have seven non-negotiable commitments as a church. We even have what we call a 20-year plan to change the world. We have really big ambitions of where we're going as a church. And yet, I just want to be honest with you, none of that is going to go the way we hoped if we don't get under our belts what it means to have authentic, loving relationships with one another in the context of the local church. Because you see, this is the hard part. This is what takes that ecclesiological elbow grease in a local church. Because running programs, that's easy to do. Throwing money at a building project, anyone can do that. I mean, we could do some dog and pony show to get people in the seats. But you see, authentic church health is profoundly dependent upon our relationships that we have to one another. Because you see, our relationships with one another are not merely to be just civil, but supernatural. It's not just that we're friendly to one another. It is the one another's to one another's as we press on together in Christ-like maturity and growth. And so this morning, what you're going to get here is a theology, a theology of relationships. A theology of what authentic biblical relationships are supposed to look like in the local church, which we're calling redemptive relationships. They are not easy. In fact, they are impossible without human being, without human, without supernatural power, but they are absolutely essential to become a healthy church, and they are worth all the pain it takes to have them. So here's where we're going. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't. Either way, here's the roadmap. This morning, I want you to see four features of redemptive relationships. Four features of redemptive relationships required to make this church a haven of souls pursuing Christ together in a mission. That was long, that was a mouthful, I'll say it again. I want you to see four features of redemptive relationships required to make this church a haven of souls, pursuing Christ in a mission together. That's key, a mission together. So here we go. The first feature of redemptive relationships is this. Number one, 
a definition of redemptive relationships. A definition of redemptive relationships. Because, Jared, what are you even talking about? I've never even heard of what you're talking about when you say redemptive relationships, to which I reply, actually, I think you have. Because this is nothing new. This is as old as the Bible itself, because where this comes from is the Bible itself. You see, what we're talking about here, what we mean by redemptive relationships is simply a summary way to describe all that the Bible says our relationships should be like with one another in the local church. And what should our relationships be like in the local church? You know exactly what they're supposed to be like because the New Testament has at least 59 descriptions of what they should be like. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Exhort one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, teach one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, love one another, instruct one another, serve one another, confess your sins to one another, be devoted. I'm not going to do all 59. Be devoted to one another, bear one another's burdens, and on and on it goes. The New Testament, get this, is profoundly concerned that our relationships with one another are intentional efforts to invest the Word of God into one another's lives. That my spiritual growth is your priority, and your spiritual growth is my priority. So let's open the box, shall we? Let's really explore what we mean by redemptive relationships because in that phrase you hear the word redemption, don't you? The word redemption. And that word is really just a juicy theological word that describes all that it is that Christ accomplished for the people for whom he died. That, that word redemption is literally this pantry-packed full of spiritual blessings that Christ purchased for the elect. And it includes not merely forgiveness for the sins of the past, but that word includes all of the spiritual power that we need to put sin to death and put his glory on display. That's redemption. But you see, now that's precisely where relationships come into play. Because you see, one of the means through which Christ provides the spiritual power we need to do what he commands is precisely through and in relationships. Does that make sense? In other words, God has designed relationships in the church to be that two-way circuit through which he supplies to our souls all of the transforming grace that we need to put his glory on display. It means that we are the means to one another's spiritual growth and sanctification. So here's my definition. I believe it's on your notes, my definition of redemptive relationships. Here's what I believe the Bible calls our relationships to be with one another in the local church. Redemptive relationships are very simply people in need of change helping people in need of change. They are built on the biblical premise that the members of the body are connected in Christ and that we are agents of one another's spiritual growth, each one mutually dependent upon the other. I need you and you need me. Therefore, here it is. Redemptive relationships exist to mediate 
the life-transforming power of Christ to one another through the Word. That's what it is. That's a redemptive relationship. Mediating the life-transforming power of Christ to one another through the Word. In other words, all this is is making tangible to one another the most glorious and beautiful and satisfying person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ Himself. That is a redemptive relationship, that my spiritual growth is your ambition. Your spiritual growth is my ambition. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that sounds great, but where is that in the Bible? Is that even in the Bible? To which I reply, you better believe it is. Big time. For instance, Colossians 1.28, which I believe also is in your notes. In fact, I think the case is proved. I think the issue is settled by the one another. I think that proves the entire case that I'm making here, but also, also texts like Colossians 1.28. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom. Why, Paul? Why are you doing that? What, what, is, what is his aim in teaching and imparting the word of God to others? We do this, he says, notice, in order that we should present every person mature in Christ. There it is. Did you hear it? What did Paul say should be our overriding concern and objective for one another? What should be our loving ulterior motive that we all have for one another? It is that we present one another mature in Christ. That's, that's incredible. But what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that our aim, that my aim and desire for you is not to squeeze out of you what I can get for me but that I mobilize all of my energies to help you grow in maturity in Christ and that you mobilize all of your energies to help me grow in maturity in Christ, to be more like Christ, to love Christ more, to trust Christ more, to help you be captivated by Christ more today than you were captivated by him yesterday. That's my goal for you. And that's your goal for me. See, all we're doing here is in every event, every situation, every interaction, and even conversation, we are mediating and displaying whatever it is about Christ that that person needs at any particular moment. That's what this is, which sounds awesome, but how does that happen? How do you actually go about accomplishing one another's maturity in Christ. How does this work? Paul just told us, look at the beginning of the verse. He said, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom. In other words, all we do for one another is connect one another to the perfect life-changing sufficiency of Jesus Christ through his word. That's all this is. We mediate and we display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. And what this does, doesn't it? This requires something beneath the surface. 
This requires something beyond the mundane, doesn't it? This requires, over time, the willingness to engage one another at a heart level of love and authenticity in our interactions with one another. The question is, are you willing to go there? Are you willing to go there in your relationships with one another? Are you willing to be invested in this church to the degree that you own the weight of one another's spiritual growth in Christ? That's the question. Because this is not easy. I mean, this is so much more than that safe and friendly, keep your distance, you look like you're put together okay, so I'm just going to assume everything's okay. No, no, that's not what this is, because this is literally the ownership of one another's spiritual health, because it means that we are willing to walk with one another down the deepest, darkest paths of our lives. Another text. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. That's in your notes. In the context of talking about the church, notice what Paul says. He says that we are to be speaking the truth to one another in love. And doing so, he says, we notice, grow up in him in all things who is the head that is Christ. Notice, there's speaking truth and there's growing up. Well, that's interesting. But notice the result, verse 16. When we grow up in Christ, Paul says that he is the one from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All one sentence. That was a mouthful. What is he saying? He's saying that when our relationships consist in imparting to one another Christ through his word, mediating the life-transforming power of Christ through his word, what is the result of that? We grow in maturity. We don't grow without that. We do not. And yet when that happens, when we have those kinds of relationships in the church, what does Paul say happens in verse 16? He says the body of Christ functions exactly the way it should Needs get met, souls get cured, people feel loved, churches get strong. This is what it takes. See, the Great Commission, you may not have realized this, the Great Commission is advanced one conversation at a time. Do you want to make an impact for eternity? You have intentional conversations about how we're doing with one another in Christ. Because you think about it, we we here in America, we tend to think that the church is built on a single man, don't we? Namely, the guy in the pulpit. And that's true. It's true. The church is built on one man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And your ministry, in fact, the most important ministry that you have in this church or any church is to mediate the life-transforming power of Christ to one another through the Word. The question is, what does that mean? What does this not mean? It does not mean that we do anything weird or programmed or superficial or inauthentic. That's, that's not what we're talking about. It also doesn't mean that you have to be everybody's best friend. 
This doesn't mean that you won't be closer to some people than you will be to others. The natural rhythms of life will naturally direct you to some people than to others, and that's okay. No one's talking about anything weird or programmed or synthetic here. All I'm saying is the church is so much more than a Sunday morning and some programs because what this is, what this is, is a recovery room for ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. And we are one another's physicians and patients. I'm your physician and your patient. You're my physician and my patient. And we don't get well without the mutual exchange of prescriptions from the sacred text of Holy Scripture, otherwise known as redemptive relationships. Now that's the what. That's what we're talking about. Now let's move to the second feature of redemptive relationships, number two, the necessity of redemptive relationships. The necessity of redemptive relationships, which I pretty much already said, right? We, we need this. We need the mutual infusion of grace and hope to and from one another through the word of God. But you see, there are two reasons. There are two reasons why we really need these kinds of intentional, purposeful relationships with one another. And those, both those reasons are on your notes. We need these kinds of relationships because, number one, the corruption of the human heart that on its own will drift away from Christ. And the second reason why we need these kinds of relationships is because of the coming totalitarianism and persecution that's headed for the church. Which means we are not playing games and we're talking about redemptive relationships. So first, first, the corruption of the human heart demands that we have redemptive relationships. You have to understand the Bible is absolutely clear. Understand this. The maintaining of our faith and our perseverance in Christ firm until the end is a community service project. I don't finish the race without you. That's real. And you don't finish the race without me. That's real. I mean, this, this is Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. I, I read it last week. The, the writer says, take care, brothers. Watch out, brothers. Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's saying, watch out for that because it could happen. But then he says, exhort one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Why? Lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. That's a big if. And we will hold fast our assurance firm until the end through the word-centered counsels and care and encouragements and exhortations that we give to one another. That's fact. That's theological science. Because you see, what most people don't realize. Myself especially, I think. I did not understand this. When I became a Christian at 19 or 20 or whatever it was, most people do not understand that when they become a Christian, they are literally entering into a war zone. 
See, I didn't realize that when I became a Christian and I heard all the people talking about their, their peace and joy that they had in their lives, which is real and true and authentic, I didn't realize that that peace and joy happens while bombs explode and bullets fly over their heads. Most people enter into the Christian life, myself especially, in our bathrobes, newspaper under our arms, coffee cups in our hand, shocked to find the corpses and the, and the bloody limbs of our comrades scattered over the battlefield of life. Most of us, we emerge into the Christian life totally unprepared for the life-destroying temptations and challenges there to greet us. And you know, you know, you have seen enough divorces and adulteries and abuse and kids that go apostate in the church to know that I am not exaggerating. This is war. See, where we go wrong in the Christian life is we underestimate the power of sin. And we grossly overestimate our ability to overcome and resist sin, which is precisely why the local church exists. Not to tickle our fancy or cater to our preferences, but what this is, is a battalion of souls partnering together as we press on towards Christ day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need redemptive relationships. But there's a second reason why we need them. And it's because of the coming totalitarianism and persecution that's headed for the church. Because I, I didn't know. I didn't know that when I first started thinking about becoming a pastor at the age of 22, I, I didn't know that, that part of my job would have to be to stand up and to prepare my people for persecution. I didn't know that. I mean, terrified though I am of pain and persecution, I, I did not know that I would have to tell my people what the apostles told their people, which is Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. I didn't know that I was going to have to tell you 2 Timothy 3.12, now those, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because you understand the waves of persecution have been at low tide in America for centuries. Well, our comrades in other countries get beheaded for their allegiance to Christ. You see, that is normal. This is abnormal. This is the exception. I've said this before. I, we've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity so long, but the gates of comfort and security are closing in America, and mark my words, they are closing fast. Because when I say the coming totalitarianism, what I mean is, is that it seems like that we are at the beginning stages of what will eventually become the Soviet Union. Some of you don't know what that is. But basically, under the Soviet regime, they killed 20, 30 million of their own people, slaughtered them. That's where we're going. Maybe not. Anything can happen. But as I keep my ear to the tracks of perceptive cultural analysts, they feel that America has hit a tipping point, is on a downward slope headed towards destruction because we live in a culture in which truth doesn't actually mean anything. 
And where there is no truth, the question no longer becomes what is good, what is right, what is true. The question becomes who has the biggest guns and who has the power. It doesn't matter what's true. I'm the one with the gun. That's where we're headed. Because see, what we have here is an increasingly secular and hopeless society meeting humanity's need for meaning and purpose. Listen very carefully. Under the guise of gentleness and concern for the marginalized, the social justice movement is quickly becoming the creed of the day. Which doesn't sound bad. Justice is a good thing. Justice is a great thing. Agreed, except for, except when that means that the Christian worldview is being blamed as the primary cause of sorrow, suffering, and oppression in the world. And for that reason, it must be eradicated. Because if you don't fall in line with the majority and say what they want you to say and chant what they want you to chant, mark my words, you will suffer the consequences. You will be canceled. And how this has anything to do with redemptive relationships is because these kinds of relationships about which I'm speaking are the exact thing that God has given us for how we persevere in faith and not cave to the pressure to conform. Because when the Soviet Union crumbled to the ground and the dust settled, what we here in the West saw over there, guess what we found? Guard and underground, but a church and a strong one at that. Why? Not only because our comrades were willing to pay to defend the truth with their lives, but also because they were willing to have relationships like these. They understood what, the, what those in Russia understood, what those in the Czech Republic did not understood, that is if we isolate ourselves and we distance ourselves from the body of Christ, we jeopardize our souls. and the souls of our children. They understood that the church is a body. And we are members. And we are responsible to keep one another healthy through the antibody of truth from the pages of Scripture. That's what we mean by redemptive relationships. And my question for you is, are you willing to have those kinds of relationships? Are you willing to take proactive involvement and care over one another's spiritual growth? Are you willing to open up to people and really, honestly let them in how you're actually truly doing in your pursuit of Christ? And will you ask them to help you in your pursuit of Christ? Because I know that this sounds scary, right? I mean, okay, okay, Jared. If I open up and I really let people in, what if I get hurt? What if no one reciprocates? What if I'm honest with people about my marriage, about my kids, about my thoughts, my sins, my secrets, my temptations, my past, and I get betrayed or judged or slandered or misrepresented or ignored or neglected? And you know what? totally get it. Because those are real risks. 
And because this is a church filled with people who struggle just like you, all of those things are a distinct possibility for you. But to that, to that fear, I have three responses. Number one, relationships are clumsy and messy. But according to the Bible, they are a mess worth making because it's precisely in the hurt and in the mess that the glory of Christ shines the brightest. Two, hiding and protecting yourself from pain is not the biblical answer to potential harm or harm that has happened in the past. That's not the answer. I'm not denying that your experience was real. I believe that it is real. I'm just saying you will never heal nor grow and you will not help others heal or grow unless we all are willing to be vulnerable and honest with the deepest sins and struggles of our lives. And three, third response to that. You might remember, but Christ himself was hurt and wounded and betrayed and abandoned by those who were closest to him when he needed them the most. And so what that means then, that if these things happen to you, and it's possible that they will, we don't want them to, we will do what we can to prevent that, but should they happen to you, what we know, what we know is that Christ, as your sympathetic high priest, not only can sympathize with your pain, but he can give you what you need to respond in a way that he responded, which was with forgiveness and patience and love. These are hard. These are hard. These are supernatural. This requires supernatural power. But that brings us to the third feature of redemptive relationships. The third feature of redemptive relationships, number three, the instrument of redemptive relationships. The instrument of redemptive relationships. And by that, I mean the sacred text of Holy Scripture. I mean truth. And literal Bible verses are the currency of exchange in redemptive relationships. I mean the truth. And and literal Bible verses are the CPR that breathe life into one another's souls. That's what Paul meant when he said, speaking the truth in love. That's not an evangelism verse. That's a one another's verse. Now, what am I saying here when I say that, that the substance, that the currency of exchange in our relationships should be the word of God as central? Well, what do I mean by this? Well, I, I'm not saying, of course, that we don't be good listeners, I'm not saying that we be all preachy and weird. I'm not saying that we callously quote Bible verses to one another when we are in pain, because sometimes, sometimes it's good to be silent and a shoulder to cry on, right? I mean, even Job's friends, the most effective ministry that they had was in chapter 4 when they first saw Job in his agony, and they were wisely silent for seven whole days. It's when they opened their mouths that they became ineffective. All I'm saying, though, is that sooner or later, the shoulder has to give way to a sermon. All I'm saying is that to truly help hurting people, you need to give them more than cliches and platitudes and and just good advice from your experience. You see, to truly give hope and help to hurting people, we have got to dip our fingers in the balm of Holy Scripture and wisely apply it to one another's souls. Because consider, consider, for instance, how the Bible speaks about the Bible. 
It's really interesting. Psalm, 9, Psalm 19 says that the word of God is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. Well, that's interesting. Psalm 119 says that the word of God, that scripture is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. It pierces into the very soul. Think about this. Gold and light and honey and a living sword that slices open the human heart. What does this mean? means the word of God is the most lethal instrument of hope and change known to man. Therefore, the word of God must be central in our relationships to one another. Turn to Psalm 1 real quick. Psalm 1. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the word of God in the role of, in the life of the righteous. Psalm 1. And in verse 1, again, he's talking about the the role of God's word in the life of the righteous. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, blessed is the man. Literally, happy is the man. That's what that Hebrew word means. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, people who are happy avoid sin. If you want to be happy, avoid sin. There's that. But verse 2, instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that, that blessed person, the happy person, notice it says that his delight, literally his pleasure is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's you. And that's me. Meditating, thinking, pondering, savoring, clinging to the Word of God all day long. What this is, is that IV drip line relationship to the Word of God, where it's not just true, it's a means of survival. Because should we have that, should we have that IV drip line relationship to the Word of God, what is the result? What happens? Notice verse 3. Those who meditate on God's word day and night, notice, will be like a tree. Firmly planted on streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and everything which he does, he prospers. What is my point? Well, what does this have to do with redemptive relationships? It has everything to do with redemptive relationships. How? The point is, if that is what the Word of God is and does, follow me, then does that not make it clear that the Word of God is the most loving gift that we can give to one another? I mean, what are redemptive relationships but to help one another have the law of Yahweh be our greatest delight? What are redemptive relationships but to help one another become trees firmly planted by streams of water, green and flourishing and bearing fruit for the glory of the Father? I mean, don't you see your job, your ministry in this church is to water trees. You see, the church is an arboretum of souls. 
And we are all arborists, ecclesiological arborists. And our ministry to one another is to water one another with the water of the word of God. I am a tree. I need you to water me. I am not a self-replenishing stream, and neither are you. We are but leaky buckets at best. Or, to stay consistent with the analogy, trees that on our own will wilt without the communal watering with the word. So by way of application then, what this means, get this now, is that the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to have daily meditation on the sacred text. It's true. See, we spend time in the Word not just for our own personal devotional delight so that we can water brings us very quickly to the fourth feature of redemptive relationships. The hindrances to redemptive relationships. The hindrances to redemptive relationships. Because just like arteries can be blocked and freeways can be jammed, redemptive relationships also can be blocked and jammed. And that's not rocket science. And we we all know that there are challenges that come up within relationships that cause them to have tension and pressure and even be severed from one another. And yet, and yet, redemptive relationships, which are the only kind the Bible speaks about, by the way, redemptive relationships have their own particular challenges, don't they? Because what they affect is not just you personally, but they affect the entire church. And here's my question, not to answer out loud necessarily, but my question for you is, what would you envision be the kinds of challenges that we could face in redemptive relationships? As we seek to move forward and seek to be a church that has these kinds of intentional relationships, what would you suspect would be challenges that would threaten and prevent these kinds of relationships? Because I can think of six, at least six, challenges that threaten redemptive relationships, and all of them are in your notes there. Number one, number one, this is going to go fast. Number one, spiritual death. Spiritual death is the biggest hindrance to redemptive relationships because it means that someone doesn't actually know Christ. You can't fellowship with an unbeliever. And that would be the biggest challenge, obviously. That's what Paul meant when he said in 2 Corinthians 4.15, or chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, when he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And I'm going to say something that could totally be taken the wrong way. And I say this carefully. But with regard to redemptive relationships, and everybody's story is different, but but if all you have, you think about your past, and if all you have are burnt bridges and bitter complaints and ruined relationships and grudges and churches at which you got burned, if 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 that's the large pattern that you see in your past, then you need to hold out the possibility that it might not be them. It might be you that's the problem. And you might not actually know Christ. The second hindrance to redemptive relationships, number two, secret sin. Secret sin, secret and life-dominating sin is like a vampire stake in the heart that kills redemptive relationships. Just, just kills them. And the reason for that, because you know what secret life-dominating sins do, don't you? I mean, people think that those who have them think that those sins only affect them personally, privately. But what they don't see, that everyone else 
receive is that those sins, secret sins, make us, note, detached and awkward and distant and bitter and critical and suspicious and weird and cynical and unwilling to be vulnerable or let anybody in. That's what sin does to our lives. That affects the body. And if that describes you today, if that describes you, if you feel like you have a life-dominating sin in your life, I just want to offer hope to you today by telling you, by telling you, reminding you of the sin-severing power of the death of Christ. If you truly belong to Christ, you are no longer a slave. And all the power and pleasure you need to overcome sin is found in the sacred text of Holy Scripture, which is also precisely why you need redemptive relationships. Hindrance number three. We're almost there. Bitterness. Bitterness poisons the communal waterhole of the local church, doesn't it? It does. It doesn't just affect you. This affects the whole church. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews warned us about. In Hebrews 12, verse 15, he says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, and by it, notice what he says, causing many to be defiled. Think about that. One Bitter person defiles many. Defiles them, it says. I don't really want that on my conscience to be responsible for defiling you, do you? And so please do not, and I'm speaking to myself also, please do not let your hurt and anger calcify into bitterness because for whatever reason, the bitter heart must spew its poison into the ears of other people by slander and gossip. And you know that slander and gossip in the church is more dangerous than a gunman. Number four, pride. Spiritual pride kills redemptive relationships. And spiritual pride takes many forms, cloaks itself in many ways. Usually it takes the form of refusing to be vulnerable or open or honest. Usually it takes the form of doing the opposite of that, which is being critical. Because we feel ashamed. How it works is we feel ashamed and, and embarrassed. And, and we know that who we really are isn't who we've portrayed ourselves to be. And so in our pride, we turn it around and we either pretend that we have no real struggles or we become arms crossed, critical of, of everybody else, or we just assume that what we struggle with isn't anybody else's business. But it is. It is their business. And you must make it their business with honest, vulnerable, blood and guts confession to one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This has happened to me here twice. I've had someone pull me aside, and this is what they said. I need to confess some sin to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's health. That's health. Number five. Emptiness of the word. Emptiness of the word. Emptiness of the word makes redemptive relationships impossible. Why? Because truth is the electric current that charges and warms authentic biblical relationships. Let's put it this way. The flames of fellowship in the church are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. You literally change the dynamic of this church when you get excited about what God has to say in his word. The most loving ministry that you have is being satisfied by Christ through the word. 
number six. Hindrance number six, ecclesiological absence. Ecclesiological absence, which is just a really fancy way of saying that the Sunday gathering of the redeemed just isn't a big deal. It just isn't a big deal. That the Sunday morning gathering of the redeemed, it's redeemed, it's optional. But it's not. It's not optional. It's, it's not. Now, things happen, right? I'm not... You know, I'm not the attendance police. No one's after mere attendance here. It's not what we're saying. All I'm saying is, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, even as is the habit of, habit of some, but all the more exhorting one another, even as you see the day approaching. That's why Sunday morning matters. Because all this is, is us taking ownership of one another's spiritual health and well-being. Your spiritual growth is my priority. My spiritual growth is your priority because that is how you become a healthy church that changes the world. So let's, let's become that kind of church, shall we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need your help. We're just people, frail and fragile and fallible and faulty people, and we need your help, Lord. We, we struggle. Our default mode is struggle. And so, Lord, we need one another. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to cultivate a culture of honesty, a culture of vulnerability. Not that it's not here now, but, Lord, I, I pray that the whole mentality of the fact that what the church is is a recovery room for ransom sinners and recovering idolaters, Lord, I pray that that would just shape how we think about our relationships to one, with one another. Nothing to hide, nothing hidden just seeking to grow and partner with one another. Help us, Lord. Help us to be this kind of church that we can come and know, know that, that we live with the understanding that we all possess the most dangerous instrument on the planet no, known as the human heart and that we need one another to persevere in our faith firm until the end. Help us do the one another's to and for one another. And it's in Christ's Matchless name we pray. Amen. Well, a few announcements. And in fact, these first two announcements will be application. Application of what I just said. First, we have a number of Bible studies and small groups happening at the church. And you see, here's why small groups are so important. This is why this is so crucial for the life of our church. It's because small groups are the platform for redemptive relationships. I mean, there's only so many one another's that we can do here on a Sunday morning. We can do a lot of them, but there are some one another's that lend themselves better in a more particular way to small groups. So if you want to be connected, if you want to grow, if you want connected relationships in the church, small groups are a platform for these. And so you can see it in the bulletin that you have, at least I think you have those. In the bulletins, there are, there are there are a handful of small groups and Bible studies to be a part of. I encourage you, be a part of that. Jump on that. That would be really uh, incredible and really good opportunity for you. Uh, the 
second announcement, the books of the month, they are all here. Uh, they relate somewhat to what we're doing he here on Sunday morning and also at our theology seminars. The Gathering Storm is a cultural analysis of what's unfolding in the culture. So the postmodern thing that is just bubbling beneath the surface, what does that look like? How does that play out? How do we be prepared to face the loaded gun of a culture in which truth is meaningless? The, cult, the Gathering Storm will help you with that really good tool to help you think wisely, perceptively, and even compassionately about a, storm, about a culture that, that absolutely hates truth. The other one, it's a little harder to read there, but it's called What's Your Worldview? How many of you remember reading as a kid those, those choose-your-own-adventure novels? Do you remember those? This is a choose-your-own-adventure novel. It's really interesting. It's this little thin book where it's a choose-your-own-adventure novel where it's like, okay, you read about, all right, I'm going to be an atheist. Not that I'm thinking you will, but if someone were to be like, all right, I'm going to be an atheist, you read the description of atheism, and at the bottom it says, okay, for, uh, for the outcome of where atheism leads, turn here. To reconsider your position, turn to this page. And then you turn to that page either way, and then, you, and then it leads you to where that worldview will lead you at the end. It's really exciting and really helpful evangelism tool. So what's your worldview? Again, that's what we're talking about here. We are facing a culture that does not have a Christian worldview. So if you want to learn how to evangelize people better in a really easy conversational way, this book is perfect, or even as a gift to unbelieving friends. So I recommend it highly. Okay? And then uh, last but not least, sorry about going over. Tonight, tonight we are having our theology seminar at 5 o'clock. There will be dinner provided. Rumor has it there will be pizza so there you go. So two incentives to come. But here's, here's the question I want to ask to, to frame this. And don't answer out loud. But the question is, is Catholicism authentic Christianity? That's the question. Does Catholicism have the right gospel? That's the question. And the answer to that comes tonight. So I'm going to walk through what the Catholic Church actually teaches as a way to reach uh, Catholics and... Um, and what that means, and can Catholics be saved, and what do we do with this whole thing that seems kind of close, but not really. What do we do with this? That's all coming tonight. I trust that will be an encouragement to you. Okay, five, tonight, 5 o'clock, here in this room. It will be live and recorded, so uh, but uh, if you want pizza, be live, okay? All right, so why don't you stand, and let's do a benediction together. Benediction comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To the one who loves us and who freed us from our sins with his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to our God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. We'll see you tonight. Praise the Lord, His mercy.